the OpVac cast. This is our Oscar Omnibus special, part two. And we're back again with Sean Glynis. Hey. Jake Trapila. It's like we never left. Yep, because we just took a ten minute break to eat a Euro. Hey, uh, man behind the curtain. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Adam Myros. Hey, Steve. Hey, how's it going, man? What are you drinking? Sean's uh, favorite question. Dog, some dogfish head. Shh. Delicious dog fish head. Pretty by the books. You get that at your local supermarket, you loser. I didn't buy it. It just <laughs> showed up in my fridge. What? You got like leprechauns to leave that shit there for you? He gets blue apron for beer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Make this beer. <laughs> uh, and, well, and Jack Easton's here too. Yeah, I did leave, but I came back. That's good. We're glad to have you back. All right, guys. Let's uh, let's get through the rest of these best picture nominations. We're gonna start off with one that's, I guess. Out of all the movies that are nominated for Best Picture, this one is probably uh, the most widely seen. It was a wide-release film. Uh, made a lot of money, actually. Uh, pretty popular with uh, you know your average sci-fi fan as well as critics. Jake, tell me about Arrival. Absolutely. Wait, wait, wait. So Arrival, wait, wait, wait. Don't tell me oh. about Arrival. Tell me how to oh. pronounce the director's name. Arrival is the latest film from Canadian filmmaker Denis Villeneuve. Okay, thanks. You're welcome. Go ahead. Um, it concerns uh, an alien invasion across the world where these eight shell-like pods have landed and their purpose is seemingly unknown. And a research team headed by Amy Adams head to the one in America and they go into the pod to communicate with these tentacled alien creatures to figure out what their purpose is. And the film is essentially about them discovering how to communicate with these beings using their special smoke ring um, communicator symbol thingies. That's what I'm going to call them. All right. Uh, yeah. And uh, and this, I think, is a very intelligent and rousing sci-fi picture. It's kind of interesting that this was nominated for Best Picture, um, but it's one that I admired greatly. And um, it also has a very interesting structure with the flashbacks and flash forwards and probably a spoiler alert I'm going to drop in here for anyone who hasn't seen it uh, yet um, because there's a reveal regarding the uh, narrative of the film. Um, but uh, I, uh, I admire Arrival immensely. I think I'm the person here who would bat for it the most, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I know we had a podcast about it uh, recently. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot to love about Arrival. Mm-hmm. It's very, very beautifully shot. Um, the scope of the alien shell ponds is outstanding. Um, I'd probably say this is Denis Villeneuve's second best film, but it's not quite as good as Sicario. Um, and uh, anyone have anything they want to say about Arrival? I think, well, and this is something that we touched on, certainly when we did the arrival theme podcast, but... This is one of those movies that Denny Villeneuve has made where he can, he can take something that doesn't seem like it should be like an Oscar-caliber film and elevate it, and I think Sicario was the same way, where mm-hmm. that one just read to me as like, oh, like, political action thriller, but then you see it and you're like, oh, no, this is a lot more than that. Um, 
I guess my question is: Are you surprised? Not, not, oh my god! What the fuck? Did somebody That's kill that's my dog? Oh, no. someone came in. It's not I'm my dog. Ah. Yeah, oh my god! Adam's dog. But so, spoiler alert: Believe he's, it or not, uh, sorry, that's my cat. The wow. the Opvac cast. The Opvac cast. It only generates a few million dollars per year. So, uh, Jack supplements <laughs> his income with a puppy mill that he runs. <laughs> yeah. So I'm making a lot of money. Does anyone want a dog? They taste pretty okay in a stretch. I mean, yeah. Well, you do you do what you got to do. Uh, okay, so with Arrival, is are, is anybody surprised that this one ended up on the best picture list not because of the quality of the film necessarily, but because of the type of movie that it is 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 kind of like a Right, it's a very uh, genre. Yeah, genre picture. film. Yeah. Uh, yes and no. I mean, now, like, I think the best picture category is just so fluid in terms of definition, like, with it being, like, up to 10. So, like, just anything that is, like, beloved and that some people think is smart, I feel like is, like, you know, could be a candidate. I'm not, I'm not surprised that I didn't see that and we're like, whoa. Yeah, I I, I kind of surprised because of the quality. But oh no, yeah. <laughs> Myros is soured on Arrival, which is weird because I feel like after I saw it, I think like once it set in for me, I I, I liked it more. Uh, but you've had the exact opposite reaction. Why don't you like Arrival, Myros? Uh, yeah, Other than you're I a just, curmudgeon, it, it's just like gone from my mind. I don't think about it ever, and I Agreed. just think it was like a uh, really uh, really slight film that what? I just you know in retrospect. Would you say I, that I after it live, arrived, it departed? It's just not uh, <laughs> not anything I will ever revisit, and not anything I'm especially fond of. And yeah, if I were ranking it in in Villeneuve's Ovar, it's probably my least favorite film of his that I've seen. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm not a huge fan of it either. I thought it was fine. I thought it was okay. Um, but yeah, I would agree with that. I'm, I don't. It's a film that kind of happened, and there's a little quirk in it in terms of its timeline. But I don't like. It's not a film that made me really think about anything or rethink its structure or anything it just sort of hit me it happened and then i'm i'm done hey that's all right i mean this is, just, <laughs> this is just one of these these classic scenarios where me and jake are right and everybody else is wrong so i mean that it happens frequently <laughs> you really liked it steve yeah no, i really liked it i thought it was a great movie yeah i saw it twice and it really resonated with me the second time more so because it's i had such a profound emotional experience watching it which is also very atypical of a genre film like this especially sci-fi i mean when is the last time you can say you watched a science fiction film and say you felt anything by it except like if you're sean glennis and you watch dune and the only thing you feel is hatred yeah. of humanity or uh sean yeah, glennis you're watching passengers and you have an erection the entire time <laughs> yeah for the wrong reasons but my my issue with with arrival or one of my issues with it is that i feel that it's a movie that gets distracted by its own its own internal structure. It gets distracted by geopolitical elements that honestly have nothing to do with the film. Uh, you know, there's, there's this whole question of China because the aliens are land all over, and China is kind of leading a charge to aggressively respond to the aliens. Uh, and they're always like, "Oh, what's China going to do? Is China going to ruin all this? And who's teaming with China? And is America going to team up with them or not?" And it's kind of like we don't give a shit because this is not. This isn't real politics. This is a fictitious scenario. So why, you know, it doesn't matter what these countries do. Let's talk more about the language and the idea of the aliens. I feel the film just gets bogged down by this kind of 
this this kind of war game that it's made up in its own head, and that's what I'm thinking. Like a, a science fiction film that really is intelligent. I think something like say Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris is probably like you know you're up on a pillar kind of. Wait, you pedestal. mean the Soderbergh film? The, yeah, 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 that one too. But like Solaris does not dabble at all in international politics. It's entirely just like they go into space there. It's Russians who are in the space and that's fine and they don't deal with that anymore. I just wonder if Arrival wouldn't have benefited more from just cutting out all of the concept of aliens showing up and just focus more on the discourse with the aliens. If it's talking about language and time and conception of time as yeah. resolved through a language. I think it, it I, to me, it just feels that Arrival uh, misses, it, it, it gets distracted by certain elements, and I just, I found it's, myself... It's definitely I, no passengers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when we're talking about a cerebral film, it's, uh, I, it needs to be something that has me thinking more about it after the fact. Something like what we were talking about with L, uh, as opposed to this, which just, I, I didn't think about it for a damn minute after I left the theater, really. And it's, to me, I, I can't fault Jake for having an emotional response to it. I mean, La La Land is probably number one on my list for the year solely because I had, I had a strong emotional response to it. I, I was unable to, uh, have such a response to Arrival, and I think a lot of that had to do with, its structure and it was structured in such a way that what could have been emotional felt to me like a bit cloying Mm. yeah the structure was oh sorry go ahead jack no no i I was just gonna say one thing that did i did think was interesting is its structure and it's it's kind of upheaval of time reminded me a lot of like nicholas rogue and that's not something that's very common in film right now it's it was a it kind of this idea of time as being kind of a shifting, amorphous thing. I did like that element, and it's kind of it's introduced subtly throughout the film that the flashbacks, you suddenly start to realize, maybe aren't flashbacks. Um, that I thought was interesting, but I just I don't think the film went anywhere with it. You know, it doesn't have a, a great shift. You know, there's, there's nothing that really shifts my perspective as the film kind of fills in the gaps and i guess that was kind of what was missing for me yeah yeah it doesn't really matter if they're flashbacks or flash forwards they still Mm. serve the same purpose but it's that this all coming together for me because uh i i don't like nicholas rogue at all so it's all making sense to me (laughs) you don't like nicholas rogue no i don't not even the good films he made and not the absolutely terrible films he made afterwards don't look now no hey i hate it Cold Heaven? Oh, wait, no, that's bad timing. Film. <laughs> oh, God. I've never seen a Nicholas Rogue film. Performance. A lot of time on Arrival. Yeah, I, yeah, I think, I think yeah. if, you, if you're listening to this episode right now and you're like, hey, I want to hear more thoughts on Arrival, you can actually go back uh, a couple episodes of the Opvac cast and we have an episode uh, about Arrival. Do you guys know what it's called? It was like episode 38. It was 38. called, it was called uh, the, Arrival. Starling, oh, the Arrival. Uh, starring uh, Charlie Sheen. Ah, yeah, there yeah, we go. Okay. Smug, you'll, you'll be in the right yeah. place. So look for Charlie Sheen's face. That's our calling card. Uh, next movie I want to talk about is, I think it's like low-key one of the best Best Picture nominations, but it's it's one that no one is really talking about at this point, which is kind of depressing. I don't think it has yeah, a chance It'll probably in hell. receive like zero votes for yeah. For yeah. This yeah, this is one. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and again, this yeah. is not a, a a testament to its quality, but it's not even polarizing. Like universally, everyone's just like, "Oh yeah, it's really good," but it's it's not in these these conversations. I don't think it's going to win a single damn award except Myros. Uh, except for Myros. Oh, well, I I disagree. Although uh, I will say, a, I, I, I haven't even said the title we yet. Uh, <laughs> when we were discussing dad films. See, this should be your dad film right here. Forget about Hacksaw. 
bring in this. This, this right. any dad would love this film. So it's to make yeah. a dad think and feel bad. So I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is Hell or High Water, which is uh, Jack. You want to, you want to tell us a little bit about Hell or High Water? Sure. Um, this is actually uh, like honestly, I think this is probably my favorite of all the Best Picture nominees. Uh, I think this is a really great film. Really took me by surprise in theaters how much I liked it. Um, basically, a kind of Texas-based thriller about uh, two brothers who are robbing banks um, and the sheriff, played by Jeff Bridges, who's chasing them. But the two brothers, it turns out they're robbing the bank to... Essentially, they're robbing a single chain of banks, and that bank, in a business altercation, previously took property from these brothers' father and basically ruined him financially. So they are basically taking revenge on the bank itself and so it's it kind of unfolds as a kind of a cops and robber story but really is more of a portrait of a kind of a struggling working and lower working class uh, america kind of and it's very much has a very kind of a southern feel to it i mean it's set in texas what really worked for me in the film i feel is that it's it's an amazing portrait of a kind of southern mindset um which is interesting because it's directed by a British guy, um, huh. which is unusual. But um, the film just kind of uh, slowly unfolds a kind of portrait of uh, kind of a struggling working class in America, kind of the, the southern. I guess people in the south are tend to be very proud about their work ethic, about honest living, about, you know, making their own way, being self-sufficient. This film portrays all of that but it also portrays that you know working their jobs and going you know and doing what they do they're struggling financially they're finding their property their land being repossessed and that's then offset in turn against the native american perspective this idea that the land was previously possessed repossessed uh by the the first planters or the first settlers to the u.s it kind of paints this portrait of the united states in flux I just thought it was a really, really well-made film. I don't think there's anything here that doesn't work or doesn't fit. I think it's all, you know, it's it's one of those thrillers that engages on every level. Uh, it's got mm. shootouts that are kind of engrossing action set pieces. It's got brilliant performances. I think Jeff Bridges is fantastic as a kind of older, racist, slightly racist, awkwardly racist sheriff <laughs> um there's i mean but his his interplay he with his partner who's native american is this fascinating vision of of people who get along but that there's still this disconnect between them his uh, him as kind of an older white kind of working class guy who's got his own perceptions about things and his native american partner who he's constantly you know using racial epithets against but it's done in this kind of fond way which is very odd mm-hmm. the film kind of divides it kind of it it shows in America that is fractured but functions, but some of these fractures are becoming more and more problematic, which I think is is a very interesting uh, thing to bring up in the current political era. Mm-hmm. That's very much, I mean, the Trump election campaign is very much uh, built on the same foundations as Hell or High Water, but Hell or High Water is, is not apportioning the blame to foreigners or whatever it's got a different vision of that so this i think is is definitely kind of an old man movie in a way it's kind of about you know passing tradition and stuff like that but uh really engaging genre film with brains yeah i think the things that really stuck out to me with hell or high water is we talked about on on the last episode we were talking about manchester by the sea and how the world felt really lived in and i think 
uh, it's amazing this is directed by a British guy because if I had to guess, I'd say oh, I was directed by someone from like West Texas or something. It seems similar to American Honey. Hey, there you go. Yeah, it, it feels That's very true. keenly aware of of its setting and it has an understanding and it doesn't. Nothing feels like a caricature or anything like that. Like everything feels very natural. Uh, and the other thing that's cool about it is it's a story that's clearly rooted in, like, the financial crisis uh, from a few years ago. But the film itself, it feels like it, it was, like, ripped out of, like, 1972 or something like that. So it, it, it's a very contemporary story, but the type of film that it is, it, it's almost like, you know, it's timeless almost. So yeah. a lot of good We might stuff. mention... So I, was, I think it's actually interesting that we, we move on to this from Arrival because it's written by Taylor Sheridan, who did write Sicario, the Denis oh. Villeneuve film previously. So Look I mean, you, and his, Mr. His IMDb trivia. Yeah, but uh, his his next film, Wind River, he's I think it's his directorial debut, maybe. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. So I mean, it's written by an American, but with a, a British director at the helm. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's it's like I say, it's as someone who lives in Kentucky, which is a proudly southern state. It I think it just captures that mindset very, like the paradoxes of that mindset very well. And that's why I think what I really found engaging and kind of interesting about the film is that it's a very affectionate, honest portrayal of southern sensibilities and their flaws. But then set against a backdrop, a social backdrop, where really they're losing ground. And I mean, arguably in that, it's it partially it's their own fault. I mean, a big story in Kentucky is the number of people who voted honestly against their best interests. Um, so, you know, it's it's an interesting portrait. I think it's a film that is unusually, like you say, it has a very old world genre feel to it. It's kind of, it feels like it could be a Sam Peckinpah movie, almost mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah. pickup trucks, but basically mm-hmm. just stand in for horses and it's like an old Western. But uh, the backdrop, the, the socio-political backdrop is absolutely to the day. It's, it's completely contemporary. So, yeah, uh, I agree with everything that oh, Jack yeah. is saying. It's an excellent film, and also like Arrival, it's a it's a highly regarded genre picture that's up for these prestigious awards. And mm-hmm. um, I think if it had any chance of getting an Oscar, the screenplay would probably be the one that uh, would it would win. Um, because much mm-hmm. like Sicario, Taylor, uh, Taylor Sheridan's screenplay is like it's very taut and pared down, and um, and yeah, it's it's very it's a very like as it regards to that era of um, it's a very flavorful film and re- kind of reminds me of a bit of like something that the Coen Brothers would make, um, mm-hmm. but uh, you know had they not made uh, Hail Caesar, and <laughs> yeah, there's just a lot of great singular moments in it, like the scene where Jeff Bridges and his partner go to the diner and the waitress tells him what basically what the deal is there or how ridiculous open carry laws are in the town. Um, but yeah, I have nothing but high praise for Hell or High Water. So what I want to know is, uh, do we have do we have any uh, negative comments here from Sean the Hot Take Kid Glynis or uh, King Curmudgeon Adam Myros? Uh, not well, from me. I, I wanted to hear. It sounded like Myros had some stuff to say about this because because I don't. I, I liked it. I was I I wasn't head over heels, but I, I very very much enjoyed this movie. Well, uh, Sean, how many times did you fall asleep during this movie? That's what the Twice. audience really wants. <laughs> I, I watched it all the way through eventually, okay? Snap. Myros, I'm um, going to start calling you the umbrella because you keep throwing shade. I am not. I, I, I don't have anything negative to say about this film. I just, uh, it didn't, like, bowl me over. I thought it was 
it had a simple message and it delivered it efficiently and it was a very taut film and for me the standout aspect was certainly Bridges I thought he was deserving I think when we get into best supporting Bridges is deserving of a lot more than he's probably going to get in that category but uh, he was fantastic and that that end coda with Bridges uh, and Chris Pine is fantastic yeah this but, is like uh, uh, his character is is like a better version of his character in True Grit. Like it's just a refined yeah, yeah. version of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, I like this movie better than True Grit. Yeah, yeah me I too. Definitely. This is a better Cohen film than True Grit is. Yep, it's a very. It, I mean, it's a. It has very different aims than True Grit. I don't think I'd have a lot negative to say about either, but uh, it's certainly more relevant than True Grit. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, I, I, I like the film. It's a good film. It's not, uh, really, it's kind of in the middle of the pack for me, but there you go. All right. Uh, let's move on to a movie that I didn't see because like a lot of the other best picture nominations, you guys are like, I don't even bother. Uh, I think it's interesting too. This is another one where a lot of critics were super high on Hacksaw Ridge movie. We discussed in the last podcast and you guys universally hated it. Uh, hidden figures, Again, it's it, big critical success. I've read some really interesting essays about it, uh, but my understanding is nobody here was really that into it. So, Sean, what what is Hidden Figures? Uh, uh, <laughs> it's just that noise. I'm Sean, is concerned, Sean is concerned whether or not he's a good white person or a bad white person. Really I'm so torn. Wait, really which, which one of the Big Bang thought. theories is on here? Isn't that isn't isn't here? Yeah, that's the question. Is, uh, Sean, are you a Kevin Costner or a Bazinga? Okay. <laughs> um, so hidden <laughs> figures, hidden figures is what I like to call racism. Goes Bazinga. Um, so I theater hopped into this. After like bye bye man or some garbage, uh, <laughs> is this a story and, you really want to tell? You like no one is going to take you seriously. <laughs> well, okay, <laughs> you're the bye bye man. <laughs> True, but I, then I sat down. I sat down later to to a screener of it and, and watched it all. But uh, so I theater hopped and I lasted about like 25 minutes <laughs> until I was so angry. Like this movie made me so angry. It made me angrier than anything from Dumpyweary, and I was just like, I. I just was sitting there with this this theater of like what seemed like really docile audience members and just being like, you guys all deserve so much better than this. Um, so this is – first of all, it's written by one Alison Schroeder. Who's that? <laughs> yeah, do an IMDb. Go to, go to her IMDb page. <laughs> look at her profile Schroeder. photo. Some white lady whose credits include Mean Girls 2 and a movie called Ladies Man, colon, a made movie. Wait Which a second, is wait a, wait, wait. a <laughs> movie about a nerdy kid who's been stuck in the quote friend zone his whole life. Okay, let's pump the brakes. One, there's a Mean Girls two, two. Oh yeah, and no Lindsay Lohan though, presumably. St- straight to Correct. video. Straight to video. No, okay. no, no anybody. No anybody. Okay, two. This ladies' man movie home isn't home isn't a sequel situation. or a prequel to the Tim Meadows film Ladies' Man, is it? It, it it's in a t- totally different text. Okay. <laughs> Just it's called sure. Ladies' Man, a made movie. I don't know why, but once again, it's about a kid who's been stuck in the friend zone. Okay, so Is there a f- mafia involvement? No, no, I don't know. I no. <laughs> it looks like it looks like the the poster for like uh, Tammy or something like that. How, how many fact, Academy Award nominations did this one get? 
Anyway, so Doesn't this, this is the title latest... just sound like Tim Meadows like joins the mafia. Yes, yeah, yes. Kind of what it okay, like. <laughs> Hidden Figures is the latest in the Kevin Costner Savior movies. If you remember uh, McFarlane USA and Black or White, Black and White. I don't remember. How could I forget? <laughs> Yeah, black or white, uh, that are seemingly set up as diversity movies sought to teach white people about racism in the most reductive, simplistic way possible. And it's just like bursting with good white characters. Uh, John Glenn, don't worry, great white guy. Um, First man in space, but good white guy. Good white guy. Kevin Costner, great white guy. Uh, but I I mentioned that it's written by Alison Schroeder because – this seems like a cash grab to me, and this is all just like this is what I, 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 I haven't done research. Like this isn't exactly research I could do, but um, it seems like it feels like a movie that was written as like a reaction to Oscar So White to like Alison Schroeder's like, well, this thing happened with the like there is this important story. Like literally, this is an important story about these these three black women who who worked for NASA and made a difference in space engineering. Um, and it seems as, a, as though Alison Schroeder or somebody tasked her with this story that they knew would play, knew would get picked up, would be like, you know, just make it super like audience friendly. Um, and it, it'll it'll go far. And, and that's that's what's happened. But, man, it, it's it's so it's it's a movie where like the the uh, protagonist, the, the characters whose story it is, oh, are always so like smarmy good because you know as an audience member they are going to get their comeuppance. They aren't acting like characters who are under uh, this extremely racist democracy, um, but they're they're characters that act like um, they know exactly that they're it, what's going to happen, and they're just being like, hmm, "Well, I'm just going to be smarmy because I know that that you know." Sooner or later, in the next two hours, you're going to look really stupid, and I'm going to look really good. And <laughs> it's just like setting up these 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 scenes where the, the the audience is just like, yeah. But what the audience is really like responding to is dynamics. Like they're they're responding to narrative dynamics. They're not responding to actual racist paradigm that's being upset. And that's what I think is really frustrating about this movie. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would agree with that. I I think I am le- I'm less bothered by this film than you, Sean. And I think part of that is because I ended up watching it almost. I watched Hidden Figures, and the next day I watched The Help from whatever 2011. I ended up <laughs> right, watching right. that just because that that's what happened. And The Help, I hated that movie. That movie is outright racist, as far as I'm concerned, because it's literally a movie that basically posits that. Uh, White women in the 60s also had a lot of problems, just as women, so they had a kinship with African Americans, uh, and, you know, we should never forget that kinship. And it's like, that is no, like, white women having problems with social climbing versus segregated society is no comparison at all, and it's really offensive to try and suggest that they are. Uh, so, like, the, the help makes this movie look pretty kind of just, like, it's making a mistake. Yeah, make, make no mistake, this movie is co- cookie-cutter, boring, 
it's it absolutely reduces what i don't get though of thing to kind of a, a really streamlined it, it kind of felt a little bit like spotlight to me from last year which won best picture which is absurd but like spotlight, true like, story yeah it, it's just one of those films that just condenses yeah. a real story into very digestible narrative and kind of trips through it very comfortably and very easily and doles it out to the audience and you kind of sit there and then you can feel better about yourself for having learned something about a, a thing that happened and then it changes nothing it doesn't what, do it you know what guys, also really frustrates me about this though is the um response that it's gotten from critics that like i ex- that i know are smart people that i expect to be like discerning and I've listened to so many podcasts like that like aren't exactly podcasts that I care about, but just like to see what they say oh. to find some sort of kinship. And it's all just like, oh, I loved this movie. It was so smart and like the characters are great. And it's just like where is the cynicism that you show every other other episode? Uh, there was like Travis Bickle, like Tucker Stone on Travis Bickle was like the only like voice of reason for me. But man, I don't understand. I, I like, have tell an me alternate a single viewpoint. thing about any of these characters, please. Please, because I I some are tell black. You. They're smart <laughs> and, and black. Some are white. Some are good white. Some are. I will say white. I will yeah. say this, Sean. Obviously, you had some problems with this film, which is fine, and I didn't care for it that much either. I will say the three leads I thought were great. Um, sure. Hanson, sure. Octavia Spencer, Janelle Monae. Problem is they're in the wrong film um, because we all know that these are smart, brilliant, capable women who are succeeding in a time where there's still racial segre- segregation. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that the the like the antagonists and the and the issues that they're dealing with are just handled in such a over the top cartoony manner right. that really hobbles the film. And at one point, you mentioned uh, Kevin Costner as the white savior. There's one scene where he literally smashes a colored restroom so sign bad. with a crowbar, oh. and, and then he said he turns <laughs> and looks at the camera and says, "We all piss the same color," and then he walks away. Here at yeah, now. yeah. I mean, like Octavia Spencer is great. Like Janelle Monae, like the, they're all the, they're all great. As is Maharaja Ali. Um, like, like all four of those uh, actors more kind than I. Well, I, I think What's all four to be of those great act- with. There's no material to be like. Oh, what a okay, great performance! Great, but like they're they're not like they're not bad. Like those four actors like have trouble being bad. I think. Yeah. Mm, sure. Well, I mean, we, we uh, can clarify, I think. So to clarify for anyone who may not actually know the the film tells the true story of a group of African American women who basically helped work the math and the logistics for getting the first American into space. Um, and NASA was originally a segregated workplace, but they had African Americans in doing computing. Uh, and these women basically were so exceptional and forward thinking and brilliant in their fields that eventually they were roped in as America was trying to, battle with with russia and of course russia won the race but then with the help of the of these spoiler, women, alert. spoiler alert yeah yuri gagarin got there first i don't know if he was a good white guy or not no idea but, <laughs> no he um, was fucking russian of course he, he was russian it's true guy. he's like yeah. Dolph lundgren oh there's a good polish white guy in this movie oh yeah that's oh, true well yeah, that's he's, he emigrated he's jewish. he's jewish he has his own struggles oh, which can be equated back to the african-american struggle in this incredibly <laughs> flat world view that they are Jesus. kind of positing guys but yeah I-, I mean but literally the, the the lesson of hidden figures if i were to boil it down is basically that if racism's bad but if you are an absolutely exceptional human being who can give white people what they want they will cut you some slack <laughs> and that's a powerful, Man. inspirational message. I, I would like I, to offer an opposing viewpoint. What a possible... <laughs> I, I still have to rant at this fucking thing. I don't know what you have to say. Here's my opposing viewpoint. 
Community uh, would probably fucking see the movie. Well, that's neither here nor there. Uh, <laughs> Sean, you mentioned that this is like like baby's first historical drama about racism, right? Like it just it just makes racism seem really reductive, and it, it kind of yeah. feeds you this shit. If you are the type of person who says, oh, did you see that new Kevin Costner movie? It's got the Bazinga Boy in it. Aren't you the kind of person who needs baby's first civil rights film? Okay, this is this is this is a terrible this is a terrible argument to make. Okay, you know, and and honest to goodness, what I will say is that you do need a you do need like an intro to racism, or whatever. Like if you are this suburban Milwaukee guy, um, like you know, twelve year old or fifteen year old or well, I don't know, in suburban I, I, Milwaukee, wait, I thought you were calling me out or something, like thirty five, um, but like. You need one that is actually doing good representation. Mm-hmm. You you need one that has good motives at the center. And I don't believe in Hidden Figures as a as a movie that's doing that. It believe it like what you know Allison Schroeder as that you have to walk Allison Schroeder right Allison Schroeder's Hidden Figures. I don't think the motives are quite in line with what you need for any sort of view of of, of race relations in the sixties. Like you don't need to be looking at these white people as like these positive uh, influences, and like Jack said, these the, uh, representations of black people only as like people who can actually help industry, like white industry. But mm-hmm. you need something else. You need you need moonlight. Um, well, well, to to Steve's to Steve's point, I'm just looking at box office. Uh, Moonlight made about one and a half million apparently in the USA gross. That's IMDb has a couple of figures. That's the highest figures, one and a half million. Hidden figures made close to a hundred million. Whoa! Uh, so <laughs> that's I don't but even is, disagree with Steve's point, but the point well, is, this is nominated for best fucking picture. Oh sure, but so is Hacksaw yeah, you could, Ridge. <laughs> you can have this movie that's that's fucking baby's first uh, exposure to segregation, and this is this isn't even very good at that. But why yeah, in the no, hell? No, you how can't. can you put that? You can't have that. I don't know. Did you I'm guys sorry. see Remember the Honestly, Titans when the black kids and the white goal. kids were exactly. on the same team? It can be fucking Remember the Titans. Remember the Titans is not a best picture. It's not sitting next to fences and moonlight and baby insulting football. So. Yeah, <laughs> Hidden Figures is cutting out like Lion. I feel like it's the kind of movie that's going to persist in classrooms with lazy teachers. That's yeah. correct. I watched this. I made the mistake of watching this directly after Fences, and much like that Sean, I, I found this to be offensive to my senses. It was just. It was just horrible. It it said nothing. It's the true story of these three pioneer, brilliant pioneering black women. And I, the only thing I I could tell you about any of the three is that they're they're all good at their jobs, and one of them is a widow. And Dude, that's it. Just that's like it. Jackie. First of all, they have no in her lives. It's just this fucking paper thin piece of shit you know housewives yeah. to pat themselves on the back about how far we've come since the fucking 50s go to hell myros would you say the math just doesn't add up on this one <laughs> first of all first of all i will say and maybe we should segue but moonlight made 21.2 uh, domestic okay really okay imdb obviously is coming up with something crazy <laughs> Dude, you got a box office mojo oh <laughs> yeah but like, i'm lazy 
Okay, so can right. we talk about Moonlight? Yeah, we should, kinda we should probably transition. talk about Moonlight. Uh, and, you know, okay, uh, also, so- if you want to hear more about Moonlight, you can check out the uh, Jumping the Shark or Sharking the Jump episode on Will Smith, where, where you went on a Moonlight rant, Sean. <laughs> that's, tr- that's correct. Okay, so I want to talk about Moonlight, first of all, in opposition to Hidden Figures, because Hidden Figures is designed to be like this very didactic film. Uh, about race and uh, Steve, you mentioned uh, off air about Camilla Long's review for the Times. Oh yeah, can I read some <laughs> of that? Yeah, go 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 ahead and then circle back on me. Okay, I got it on my phone. I've been waiting to do this. <laughs> this is uh, yeah. Camilla Long wrote this uh, about Moonlight. She said, and I quote: "I don't know if the director Barry Jenkins meant to present such an awful one-note picture of the African American community's attitude to gay sex, but if there's one message here." It is that growing up soft means that you will be beaten up and rejected and desperately alone forever. Homosexuality, it foghorns, is the worst thing that can befall any teenage boy from the ghetto. <laughs> Vom. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and then so I, and her, I just puked in her my central mouth. thesis is, what would you say? Her central thesis in the review is, well, she's wrong about everything, and uh, she says that Moonlight is a movie that's made for straight upper-class white people who go see independent films, which, Correct. to her point, I guarantee a lot of, a lot of fucking you know, straight, upper-class white people who have access to an art house uh, Baby's theater, third racism. Yeah, they, they went and saw this. But that seems like more of an indictment of the film industry and, and distribution and a lot of other things, more so it's than it should be true. in the movie itself. <laughs> okay, so that... Type of mentality, thinking about this, uh, thinking about Moonlight as like a movie for white people, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is unfounded. But that is exactly what Hidden Figures looks like to me. It seems willing to pat white people on the back. Like it seems designed to say, hey, white people, like, yeah, racism existed, but you know what else existed? Some really great white guys. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's a fundamental difference between a film like Hidden Figures and a, and a good film about racism is that Hidden Figures safely consigns it to the past. Hidden Figures right, so presents I mean, the whole thing as something that, yeah, there's something that was a thing, but now, thanks to great white people finally, you know, getting on, it's it's okay. Whereas like yeah, we Moonlight, watch, we watch the end of exactly contemporary. <laughs> the, I watched that, it. Simon is... Costner smashed that sign with a sledgehammer, and racism <laughs> was fucking over. That's <laughs> okay. So and that, these differences, the, these differences are are important also to the structure differences. So Moonlight, its act structure is set up precisely to like imply moments on a much longer spectrum, right? Like as opposed to climaxing with important lessons for the audience. Like um, Moonlight ends with like a whisper and. Nothing is resolved, but, like, that juxtaposed with hidden figures where things are done with, like, a freaking crowbar on the wall <laughs> is, is – I don't know. It just says a lot about the differences. But Moonlight, more generally, is a film that, like, does something really interesting in that, like, it portrays identity politics and intersectionalism in this character without being about those things. That's what's so, that's what's so precious about Moonlight is it's about this kid's life. As he's figuring out his sexuality, he, he's figuring out that he's a homosexual as far as like how it's coded in social in, – in, in society. But 
what it does so well is is project this very shy kid's interior struggles. Um, it's just like somehow inverting this this very uh, reticent, taciturn kid. Like all of his thoughts are somehow translated to us, even though he's not talking about them. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's just like so Maharasha Ali is also in this movie as his um, paternal figure, and he's a drug dealer. And there's like these big humongous conflicts that are parsed in these very small moments where like uh chiron uh the main character in moonlight uh when in the first act he's you know he hears people call him a faggot and he's he's talking to and you know his mom is a, is a drug de- or is a drug addict and he's sitting there with like his paternal figure and he's he's just like what's a faggot and and he he, he finds out and ali's character like very gently describes that and you know he's putting it together like this is what people are calling me and and then he's like do you drug do you deal drugs and he's like yeah and then he's like does my mom do drugs and it's just like these humongous conflicts that haunt haunt this character for the rest of his life as far as we know yeah but like you it doesn't need to be touched on like he becomes a drug dealer in the in the third act and you know that there's this central conflict in him and it just like I don't know. It's so heartbreaking, but it doesn't have to be telegraphed like Hidden Figures does with all its issues. But I, I don't want to like too closely compare them one to one because um, there's a lot of things that would be reduced in that. But um, I don't know. Uh, somebody else can chime in on Moonlight. Well, I'll just say uh, just to cut in that say and say I think what's extra funny about Camilla Long's absolutely absurd review is the fact that she's a fucking Oxford English, like Oxford University graduate. Like this is a woman who's uh, has no idea of the world of Moonlight and clearly couldn't give a shit about even trying to get an idea about it. Because if you watch a movie like Moonlight and your takeaway from it is like, oh, these people are uh, ugly. This is a terrible society. Is like, okay, you are really just a bad person you're yeah. not even trying because <laughs> this is a movie that is absolutely like it's a powerfully just terror like a really tough portrait of a person struggling you know and internalizing so much damage and so much pain and that and the film really beautifully elaborates on that it's this incredibly personal small film it's it's a person's inner world mm-hmm. brought out on the screen it's a, you know i mean every shot in the film really is kind of subjective to the the protagonist and if you can't even try and connect with that that's that just shows that you don't even understand the conversation you know you're not on board at all Mm-hmm. Right, and I, yeah. and and I say also... this is the person who probably had the most reservations about this film as as a success. There was a couple of things I actually think maybe this film doesn't work as perfectly on, and I still acknowledge it's an exceptional film on so many levels. Yeah, it, it's also dealing with a lot of big things that could be like super, like uh, very susceptible to cliche. You know, like this kid in the projects who has this drug addicted mom who's gay. Uh, it's just like the way that it tackles those things is unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, it doesn't just like boil it down to stereotypes, um, especially, I don't know, but, uh, I think also worth talking about is the third act, um, which, um, yeah, that's, that's where I would like to hit. Yeah. I knew I, I figured you did, but the main character sort of like, uh, comes back, like reunites with, um, this guy, Kevin, who he knows from grade school and um had his first sexual or his only sexual encounter with 
um, which was sophomore at best. Um, and they just, he works at a diner and they have this, this night together in this diner. And then afterwards at his apartment and it's like the most gentle, beautiful thing I can remember seeing. Like, I I don't know. That's the thing for me is that if you're taking away all this about how being gay in the ghetto is the worst thing that could happen. And that's, that's the message of the movie. I don't understand what you were watching because this movie is one of the more romantic films I've seen in, in years. As far as that third act it is just a beautiful romantic short. Uh, I just thought it was probably the best segment of film I've seen all year. Uh, this one's a little short of my, my number one just because I, I did think it kind of was a little. You can't relate to it. I get it. Yeah, that's my big problem. No, I thought that <laughs> Naomi Harris really uh, kind of was yeah, in that, I agree. that uh, cliche realm a bit in, in act two. But for mm-hmm. me, like the biggest – like it was totally redeemed in the third act and I was in love with the film at that point and walking out was it was just a very powerful experience. And for me, the, probably the biggest Oscar stub was Trevante Rhodes, who's a total Agreed. nobody who yeah. who kind of just took all these mannerisms from – the child actors as well as from Ali who was a father figure and just embodied it so fully without saying a whole hell of a lot. He was just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It was unbelievable. I I would agree with that. Um, I I definitely, the diner sequence I think is a masterclass. It's a, just an absolutely remarkable scene from, from beginning to end. Um, I do think, Jenkins set himself a very difficult task with the film. It's it's a film that walks a tightrope in terms of its kind of subjectivist approach to its its characters' worldview, uh, and kind of sketching this portrait of the uh, effects that kind of push in on him to make him who he is. It's it and this it, it kind of clashes with something like say Hacksaw Ridge that has this very crushing. A literal cause and effect of like this made the man do this this happened and made mm-hmm. the man believe this moonlight is much more ephemeral about that it's much more tactful about right. it. it understands that there aren't you know there are certainly pivotal moments in people's lives but that you know it doesn't work that it's yeah. just like someone thing happens yeah the like it, version would be like oh you're a drug dealer and you died and my mom did drugs well i'm never touching drugs Exactly. Yeah, that, that after-school special logic that just kind of like with no, completely flat, no complexity. I think Jenkins. It's this is adapted from play as well, actually, which is an interesting point compared unproduced to Spencer's. It's an unproduced play. I didn't. I didn't realize that. Um, yeah, it was apparently like it, it was. It was apparently like uh, written to be uh, simultaneously, like all three stages simultaneously produced, like acted, and it just was like too too difficult for anyone that's to do. say like, the film is pretty ambitious but that's really ambitious i don't know if you could pull that yeah, off <laughs> that's a fascinating thing because fences is a uh, adaptation of play and it feels it's it's so uh wordy and so as you verbose and um, this is completely stripped out almost of, of dialogue there's there's like the protagonist in all three stages of his life hardly says a word um, he's, he's like he's a, an absence of, of dialogue um, it's a really interesting adaptation and I do feel that Jenkins maybe still he navigates it very well in the way that he did it I, I have no idea what the, the play looks like because it couldn't function well, it's also it's also very autobiographical and if I can just draw one more uh, comparison to hidden figures <laughs> your favorite thing to do 
<laughs> Hidden Figures was not written autobiographically because that would that's, be a much different movie. That is true. It's and it's. I think Jenkins he he does a fascinating job. Like I don't know what's on the on the page compared to what's on the screen because it's this very it's a very cinematic film. It's a film that really exists only. It only exists in the film. The editing, the the cinematography all play into the contextualizing the meaning in a way that say fences it doesn't that you know there's editing there's camera but it's really it's filming people acting talking that's where the the bulk of the film is um but moonlight has this kind of these inter kind of interruptions and that's something that took me out of it a little bit it has these flourishes of dialogue like specifically the the um titular uh under the uh, under moonlight black boys mm-hmm. look blue line which to me is it's where the moonlight title comes from but it's it to me felt like a an unnecessary addition it felt uh, like an overly poetic flourish in a film that very sensibly reduces its flourishes to a very personal kind of the 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 worldview of a typical African-American kid who's got a certain level of education, certain elements of it felt like the the sex scene, his sole sexual encounter, his hand digging into the sand is this poetic image, and it's an image out of something like Hiroshima Mon Amour. It's a, there's these mm-hmm. certain quotes within the film that I think step outside of a film that otherwise beautifully captures a subjectivist perspective of its character. There's certain things where I feel the director encroaches. These, And this is, the, when I say I had reservations about it, those are my reservations about the film. I still think this is a film I really wanted to revisit. I just didn't have a chance because I was watching so much shit that the Ampa still <laughs> nominates for, me for, for Academy Rewards. I wish I should have. I should have just watched this again. I have a feeling I like this movie a lot more, like unreservedly, yeah. when I watched it a second time because it certainly never left my memory it's it's a film that Man, i kind of argued over about, right. but it's been playing in my memory ever since i saw it when it first played theatrically so. more than any other movie that i can remember seeing in the theater i left like i was a wreck like man that third act leading up to like the last scene was just so satisfying emotionally but jake we haven't heard from you on this movie what what'd you feel um, you guys have mentioned a lot of wonderful things, and I think Moonlight is about as perfect as movies get, and the third act especially is like a, a perfect short film. Um, and I, I think that Barry Jenkins' film is probably the most beautiful film I've seen, not all year, but also in quite some time. And the way that everything just is so wonderfully fleshed out naturally and how all the performances are are completely top-notch and and each of the iterations of Chiron, where I don't think any of the actors actually met each other when they're um, playing Chiron. Um, but it's a film that's filled with so many beautiful moments and how this boy's like quest, not just for like a sexual identity, but also a social identity as well. Because each, each there's three chapters in the film and each one is named after how he identifies himself um, in the film and in the third chapter, he takes on the name of Black, and he kind of models himself after Mahershala Ali's character, who was really like the only thing he really had close to a father figure in his life, um, which I thought was really touching. And um, yeah, it's I really don't think sad too. I, I think like yeah. I, I think that last figure. I think it's really it's fascinating that he becomes like he's huge. He's this physically Im- like uh, physically huge guy. Yeah, like, he's, he's just a, ripped. Like, he's yeah, like he's just this huge guy, and it's this feeling that this is. A, a person who has absorbed so much damage, had been so mistreated by his social context, had so little outreach that his final, like his 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 adult 
itself is something that's designed to repel any kind of interrogation, any kind of interaction that people will stay away from him. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's it's a, it's a defense mechanism. Yeah, and it's it's just I I just think that it's it's and it's never that's not something that's ever you know called out in the film, and that's the beautiful thing about this film. It doesn't call out. That, I guess my my complaint my reservations about certain poetic flourishes here and there. Those are the only things other than that. It does not call out anything about its authorship, about its intent. It is just this wisp of a film kind of, it's like details that just kind of go by and you, you read it. And I can fully understand that. I guess if you're someone who has no interest in engaging with it, then nothing happens and it doesn't look like it's telling you anything. And this, I was reminded of um, when I watched The Separation recently. I was reminded of the scene where um, Sharon is asking Mahershala Ali what you know, what he does for a living and what uh, what a faggot means. And I was reminded of the scene, that scene when I was watching A Separation for the first time in the sequence, Sean, mm-hmm. where um, she's talking oh, yeah. to to her father about, did you know that um, that Rajay was pregnant? And just him like being so reluctant to tell him the truth is one of the most substantial bits of acting I have seen yeah. all year. Mm, and for sure. Really, really remarkable, remarkable mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and all, also uh, worthy is that the beautiful, uh, what's essentially like a baptism sequence where he teaches Sharon how to swim at the beach, and the real actor did not know how to swim, so Mahershala Ali had to act out the scene and also teach this little boy how to swim at the same time. Oh my god! Which, yeah, that's wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 just so it's just so beautiful. It is, is so what can, it is. So I mean, my my take on this is, and I, I it's the La La Land Moonlight. These are the two front runners for Best Picture, and we've gone through all the Best Picture nominees. I just feel, for me personally, La La Land is probably the favorite based on awards run up and this and that and Hollywood love in itself. I just find this is. Lover hate La La Land. I don't. I don't think it's really a problem one way or the other. But just the narratives between these two films are so different, and one feels so vital right now, and the other one doesn't feel vital at all to me. I don't think La La Land is. It's kind of a timeless tale of dreams versus reality, whereas Moonlight is about social identity in crisis and under threat, which right now is pretty much the hot-button topic in American society and world society. I mean, in Europe and you know they're having the same discussions about foreigners and about minorities and etc um, and using coded language to pick out essentially people who aren't regular white folk um this it just feels to me that if la la land wins best picture ahead of la la land or if la la land wins best picture ahead of moonlight it's just it sends a very troubled message to me about what Hollywood is aiming towards as much as it gets on its pedestal to talk about championing this and that and Meryl Streep talks about how important actors are I just I and I I know it shouldn't be political in a way but it just it feels like fuck it it has to be political and it has to come out one way to be right but I don't think it's going to come out the right way to me yeah Yeah. if in any any other year I would be thrilled to see La La Land uh, win, but I think it, it's essential that Moonlight wins Best Picture for me. So here, here's a question. Well, I suppose Fences would be a valid contender in that category. That's a good movie too, yeah. It is. I don't think Fences is in doesn't have a shot, chance, honestly. But, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah is, is, there, is there anybody here that, that doesn't think, one, La La Land's probably going to win, and two, Moonlight should win? Is that, are we, we all agree that that's... Oh, that I think Myros disagrees. 
Uh-oh. Well, no, I don't disagree. I think that my favorite is La La Land. That doesn't necessarily mean that I feel like it should win. I, I honestly, I would say Manchester is being excluded from the conversation a bit here. But I do think La La Land is going to win, and I think there are four very valid choices that I would not be upset with with walking away yeah. with it. It's kind of silly that there's really like this internet camp of you're either team moonlight or team la la land mm-hmm. i think it's perfectly fine to love both films and yeah. manchester yeah. by the sea i think all three of those films yeah. are perfectly uh, yeah no, choices. I'm, I'm positing it more as i, I guess the kind of the the soul of of ampus it's it's not yeah. so much that like as much as i have probably i'm the person here who clearly likes la la land the least i don't think that la la land is really a problematic film in and of itself i just think that in with the the dialogue that these films generate one feels so mm-hmm. much more you know vital mm-hmm. right now so much more in tune with the the social tone so is it, I just wonder if you know we'll see what happens I just have that feeling sure <laughs> yeah, sure I'm, yeah if they want to make a statement down. if yeah, they want to make a statement then absolutely moonlight yeah. is, is I'll the just way say to go. I think it's it's really weird the best picture category this year in the fact that I think they really like Adam was saying I think they've got like four films that are really solid surprisingly good films and then the rest of them are I think just like at least two of them are hot garbage three of them are hot garbage it's kind of amazing it's it's this really weird mm-hmm. you know the the middle ground has been eaten away on this one you know, normally, normally <laughs> and yet silence is, and, and yet silence was met with uh the yeah, titular silence. silence. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Like normally, the Oscars and Best Picture is fucking all middle ground. It's like a bunch of movies that are kind of like, oh, they're okay. Yeah, and I might sound like we're griping a lot, but there are th- five five really really good films nominated this year. I I'd say it's yeah. one of the stronger years in recent memory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. I guess we all can agree that Hacksaw Ridge is the best movie of 2016. <laughs> Steve Govu has been like eating a euro this whole time Dude, in the other room. You don't even know. I, I, I haven't been in. I, you can probably hear me chewing over the microphone. That's going to be great. Uh, <laughs> I want to run through some of the other just categories really quickly. A few of these we'll, we'll talk a little bit at length, but mostly I just want I want to burn through these things real quick. So uh, let's start with best cinematography. Before I go into the nominees, Silence was nominated. It's the only nomination that I got. I think. Am I right? Yes. Sure. Uh, unless it got like, uh, I, don't know. I think it got something else. Sound editing, sound mixing. Point is, we didn't discuss it. Yet. Yeah, we didn't. We haven't yeah. talked about it yet. Jake, I think you're the only person who saw Silence. Is that right? I believe so. The rest of us. I feel so bad for missing this. Uh, yeah, we all kind of fucked up. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> It was, well, there weren't any great it was, uh, screeners out there. I'll say that. No, and There's, the subs were messed up. It, it was playing. It wasn't even playing at the art house theater out here. It was playing at like the normal like multiplex. And, it did have a very brief theatrical run that we probably could have made an effort. At, so yeah, way to go, you guys! I can't believe you didn't see this movie, uh, Jake. Tell <laughs> I'm us just about gonna Silence. say well, I haven't seen he, it, but I think I'd give it a head of lion. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. I would say yeah. I would say it would easily be more suitable than Lion, Hidden Figures, or Hacksaw Ridge any day of the week. Well, I'm talking cinematography. Um, this one's got that real. This one's got that Revenant storyline going to it too, where it's just like you don't even know what Scorsese went through to make this movie. <laughs> uh, uh, go ahead. Jim. Yeah, <laughs> I just wish it was a better movie. Um, it's good, but it's just it didn't hit me as great. I feel it is. It's it's really overlong. I believe it's uh, it's almost three hours as oh. it is, and also kind of a kind of a problem for me is is viewing it just sort of as a as a ob- uh, viewing it objectively and not taking into my 
you know, my religious standpoint into the, into the picture because most of the film is Andrew Garfield being tortured by these Japanese to uh, apostatize or give Andrew up. Garfield had a yeah. hard fucking year with the Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> she acts all rich in silence. Those guys are really going after him. Good, good God. Um, yeah, so basically the film's plot is uh, Liam Neeson plays a priest who has, got, who has lost his way and Andrew Garfield sets out on a mission to find him. And he's captured by the Japanese, and he's essentially given the choice. They'll let him go if he steps on an image of Christ. And that's the that's the entire dilemma of the film is what um, Andrew Garfield has to go through. And that's you know, and I, I I I'm making it sound more reductive than it is, and I'm sure those with the strong affiliation. Yeah, that sounds like the world's worst uh, movie. It's like I, I really, stepped on the image in five seconds. I, I really wish that that silence that's, was up for a best original song, and the song was called "Stepping on Jesus." <laughs> I don't know. Most of the Catholics I know wouldn't really hesitate to do that. Everything that I've read about Silence, just like from a plot standpoint and everything about it, it just sounds like a like an unproduced Tarkovsky movie that I don't want to see. That that was my impression of it. Yeah, and that's not to say that Scorsese can't do religion because I love um, the Last Temptation of Christ. I think that's a phenomenal and highly underrated film when it comes to regarding uh, Scorsese's classics. It's just this one really takes a while to get going, and it's not really that compelling until the last 30 minutes or so when Liam Neeson re-enters the picture, and we learn that he has given up his faith, and it becomes like this um, like this moral chess game between him and Garfield about how uh, you know the, the benefits of giving up his faith is, is it, like there's no, no firm proof that god exists and yeah i don't know I, I as far as passion projects go and i think that this one is just sort of so so for me as far as scorsese goes and it's not as good as the wolf of wall street which i thought was excellent it someone certainly died to make silence uh, like back in the, i remember in the early pre-production someone died while they were building a set for it if i remember correctly so jesus you know it's got that going for it yeah crucified yeah, I, I in the name of judgment silence. Like I'd reserve judgment on silence, but I do I do think that there's always a difficulty with portrayals of devout religious faith, like something like Rossellini's films, like his his uh, whatever Francesco Gesture of God. Like I've always had a problem with that film because honestly, it's partic- it's it's portrayal of really devout religious people. It's really difficult to tell if they're really devout or just a bunch of morons. It's really hard to. <laughs> kind of parse that and like like I, and I mean that seriously just that there's kind of this goofiness to their belief that's very difficult for me as someone who honestly is not at all religious whatsoever to kind of parse that faith it kind of works it works sometimes for me like Joan of Arc see, can be read as a an existential fable but some of these other ones kind of like oh my did you just blow your nose <laughs> Maybe, use a little well, silence I here. I muted the mic. What the I, hell? No, it did, did didn't not. work. Did not work at all. <laughs> and with that, that's silence. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. I've just shattered Big trumpet silence. blast. Jesus Christ. Uh, I have one more question about silence. Is sure. silence the ultimate art house film for Trump's America? Because, <laughs> hear me out, foreigners okay. persecuting Christians. Eh? And the, and, and the guy who made Goodfellas. Uh yeah sure all right whatever you makes you happy I I'm gonna <laughs> quote another film critic um because this is the best summation I've heard of silence is Mike D'Angelo from the AV Club 
He says that, uh, for me, the experience was a bit like watching 9-11 truthers refusing to step on a copy of Loose Change. That's, that's, <laughs> that's silence. Ouch. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. How do you step on that? It was on YouTube. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so best cinematography. We got Lion, uh, which is Jack's favorite movie, Moonlight, Silence, La La Land, Arrival. It seems like, I mean... This La La Land's going to win. I know. It's, 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 another, it's another La La Land versus Arrival, Moonlight, right? Arrival and Moonlight, for my Moonlight mind, should win. La La Land will win. I feel I'm gonna, like. uh, Yeah, I'd say this is easily Moonlight for me. Yeah, Moonlight well, is beautiful. It's digitally shot. It's got, like I say, every shot is kind of a, a subjectivist element to it. It's kind of a cloister frame. It's got this kind of limited worldview. It's like the whole thing is always seems to be caving in around the, the central protagonist. Moonlight, I think, is an exceptionally well-shot film, but I think La La Land is just all pomp and ceremony and, and technical dazzle. And, you know, that's kind of what Ampus love, and it's singing and dancing and mm-hmm. putting a camera in a swimming pool. Yeah, all right. It's candy-coated and gorgeous and, and shot on 35mm, too. So, hey, La La Land. <laughs> How about that? Br- bringing it's it back. Shot on cheap digital like some poor fucker. Yeah. All right, let's All right. let's burn through a couple Honestly. more of these. We got to we got to keep the the train rolling here. So oh, this one's going to be interesting. Best original <laughs> screenplay. I like this one a lot. So uh, actually, for best original screenplay, the first one is the Lobster. I know Yorgos Lathamos, but I'm not going to even try to fucking pronounce <laughs> this other Greek guy's name. It looks like a, it looks like my cat sat on the keyboard. His first name practically sounds like F this. So Steve, it's a, yeah, F, F this <laughs> Philippou. Actually, Maros, could you blow your nose again? I think that's his first name. That's probably it right there. Uh, but anyways, that, he they they wrote the Lobster, and uh, aside from being like a really good weirdest shit movie i hope the lobster wins just so we can say that yeah you know, right the, the guy who the guy who made dog tooth <laughs> has got an oscar um i'm secretly rooting for the lobster as well yeah okay i think honestly it horse. is probably my favorite screenplay of this bunch yeah, i think seriously? it's a really really smart screenplay yeah i think it's certainly, certainly not my favorite film of the bunch it, but did, as far as it reminded me like have any of you guys read donald bartle me no no no. Oh, oh well, I'm here with a bunch of illiterate people, L- latchkey kids. Who have is that one of those book, book things? What's a Philistine, brother. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, all right. No, See, I, I, think, I, I like it too, but it's definitely not my favorite script uh, of the lot here. I think it's, I think it's the most ambitious script. I think I agree yeah. with Adam. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's I don't conceptual. think it's the best. Um, I've not seen 20th Century Women, so I can't say anything about that. I think um, honestly, I think Hell or High Water, I think, is a brilliantly parse together script manchester by the sea i feel is it's a brilliantly directed script yeah. i don't know about the script itself i don't know how sure. much came yeah, so yeah. it is this is an interesting category for me and I la think, la land i don't think should even be in the running honestly, no for i don't even why no, is it even on there no. i think i think 20th century women for me is probably my favorite um it's I, th- that might be the highlight of the uh, of the movie. Actually, I think it might be what Mike Mills does best. He did Beginners before this, <clears throat> which is also a really well written movie. That um, it's funny. So, Myros, when you were watching this movie, you were saying you were saying it. Uh, you kind of like constructed this uh, weird subgenre called indie fuck, which I'm guessing mm-hmm. is like Juno type stuff. I don't know. Sure, sure. But uh, like twee bullshit. But the so Bell and Sebastian of film. I didn't watch Beginners for years because the poster looked like 
twee. Yeah, it's got like Michael Caine in a scarf and something. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, nah, I'm not watching and, that. Yeah, and uh, Sophie, my girlfriend, is a big fan, and I watched it, and it's quite lovely. And we went to see 20th Century Women, and that I, I think I liked it even more. Um, Doesn't have Michael Caine in a scarf. Michael Caine. What do we do when we fall down, Master Wayne? We the ultimate it. indie fuck movie is actually the kids are all right, which is oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. which hero. is not as good as I remember it being. But anyway, that's, that's, that's a because podcast. it's fucking awful. That's <laughs> okay, so, that's what we're filming. That anyway. I actually remember that being a really I I really like that film. I really remember really liking it, and now and now I can't remember a goddamn thing about it. So it was I, a kid I, named I Laser. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, okay. That's true. Yeah, I, I was got just thinking reference. beginners, uh, not to be forget, uh, not to be confused with adult beginners, uh, which is, oh, is another good it. indie fuck film. Actually, Nick, I think. Nick Kroll. Yeah. Okay. So, 20th Century Women, though, is um, it's a movie. Of, it's a Bildungsroman of this boy growing up with women and his education of women, but not in that fratty type of way where like, you know, a dude is learning about women from some dumb uncle or <laughs> older brother that doesn't actually know about women or care about women. Um, this is, uh, about this, this boy, but it's also like, so he's growing up in this house with Annette Benning, his mom. Um, but also, uh, Greta Gerwig lives in the house and Billy Crudup. Um, and, but neither of those are related, but they're sort of renting rooms and they all make sort of this non-traditional family. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's about this kid growing up under feminism, like, but it's also about his female best friend plays a large part in sort of navigating this close friendship. The more you learn about sexuality, like both from both sides. And, uh, what I loved that this movie did or this script, especially it, it shows this kid gaining an education, but it like, it doesn't forget the nuances along the way. You know, it's like, it's not like he's just like this super feminism boy, like prepared to take on the patriarchy or anything like that, but that he, <laughs> he still has a lot to learn. He has so much to learn through practical relationships. Like, you know, you, you just, what this movie understands is you can't just like read about feminism and like be it. But, um, it's also wonderful in the way that like it has these fully developed cast of characters, like everyone had like it, it pervades due time to its cast of characters. You can tell it just like really loves them and it, it finds a way to fit them all in without being like a super long movie. Um, and it's also set in this really nicely de- decorated house. And I don't, I don't know. I, I, I thought it was really, really wonderful. And I would, I would suggest like, um, I would definitely recommend this movie, but what what did you think, Myros? I know that you were on the positive side of it, but what won you over from it being uh, quote fuck. unquote indie fuck movie? Uh, it was it was smartly written. Now, granted that it's certainly not among the heavy hitters for me. I'd probably be just ahead of La La Land behind everything else on this list for me. But uh, I it was there were very well developed characters. It, it, see, this is almost a movie that I'd be interested in drawing like a parallel with with something like Hidden Figures with its three female leads. It's like, hey, maybe they should let this Mike Mills fellow take a crack at that story. Cause, uh, <laughs> Anyone but he gave, Schroeder, I promise. Yeah, he, he breathes so much life into these characters, uh, and I, he, you really knew them, and it, it defied expectations is what really won me over. You know, It didn't go this yeah. route where it, it felt like it was headed where – Oh, then these characters are all going to pair off and live happily ever after, and it, it just wasn't about that. And yeah, it was an interesting, 
you know intersection of, of people's lives in in a certain period of time and it did fall into a bit of a beatnik bullshit which annoys me which i i can't i have a real low tolerance for beatnik's propensity to like try and pinpoint an era prior to or like a year prior to reagan where america died it's like just shut up why do you sound like a white collar <laughs> office worker in 1955 Goddamn beatniks! My rose is suddenly turning. I'm telling you, that's like a beatnik literature trope. Listen to Hunter S. Thompson lament the the day that America died or something. This has a lot of that. Like, oh, this when Jimmy Carter left office, that was it—the end of America. It's like, okay, what is? Boy, we got something for you in like 40 years. It's awfully reductive to like try and pinpoint this place where things shifted. It's like there, yeah. there is no place. It was always pretty like fucked. Trying, I don't feel like it's trying to like ca- encapsulate like an entire era. But I, I see what you mean. Like I know like some people have the same feelings about like boomer type movies in the you know uh, yeah, early eighties and stuff. They, they think that uh, once Eisenhower left, it was all done. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, uh, so, yeah, The Lobster should totally win because it's batshit insane. Uh, but uh, any of these movies awesome. are great choices except for La La lobster, Land. Yeah, we should probably say a little more. I mean, we don't have time. But The Lobster, great meditation on, like, the nature of relationships and yeah, romance and a deconstruction. It's super yeah, fucking it's a fun movie. I, I, think, I think it's a good, uh, a good date night movie if you're in a new relationship. If you, if you watch this with a girl and she doesn't hate you and think you're a total weirdo. You got it. You got men for life. It's, life. Honestly, it's fun. It's like intellectual, but it it, it it's fun, and and yeah. that's not always a um, that's not always a given. Yeah, very. It's, one of, it's one of the it's one of the movies I watched with with Holly that uh, she didn't hate me for oh, out of this good. whole thing. So that's that's a plus. You should watch Dogtooth with her. That's a great date night movie. <laughs> she hate she hates that movie, and I hate that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's her several years ago. Oh, I'm fun reminds that. me of the when I saw the previews for the Lobster, um, because it was because I actually saw a screener of it the year before, and then previews came out for it last year, and then. It was like it's a very like dark and somber film at times. Um, and then the previews for the Lobster Market is like, check out this wacky new independent comedy where people gotta turn into animals if they don't find the love of their life. And it's really playing up the humor aspect of it, of which there's very little of in the film itself. No, it's just it's a dark very and very misleading up. trailer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's really it's awful, dark. All right, uh, real quick, adapted screenplay. These were all covered in our best picture talk here, so. We'll just run through them. Uh, Arrival, Fences, Hidden Figures, Lion, Moonlight. Uh, this seems like Moonlight, moonlight. Fences, right? Moonlight. But it's got to be Moonlight. Well, I'm going to say Fences on the Hold screenplay. On. Yeah, I'm going to side with Adam here just because if Moonlight has a chance of winning Best Picture, maybe Fences would be a great consolation prize for Fences. That, yeah, fences that's is such a, a writerly thing. It, it's it's totally yeah. dependent on the screenplay and the yeah, acting. I'm sort of split but, but going to win, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm saying Moonlight as what I think should win. The thing about Fences is how adapted is the screenplay? It's the play. Yeah, it just right. is the play, sure. There's no, there's no real adapted. Like, I'm not sure, is it adapted at all? It seems like an odd addition in that sense, because I think they say every single word of the play. I don't think they cut a <laughs> single line out. That must have been well, pretty easy to adapt. It? It's the same author, so it's you're right. Like... Fuck that movie, Moonlight. <laughs> I know. Should we be criticizing a movie? Oh, there wasn't enough right. adaptation. But guys, yeah, I guess that's it's animated. Like, it's, I just it just kind of confuses the shit out of me a bit. That's just ad- adapted. It's not. They just filmed the play. Move sound over. editing or sound? No, I'm not. We're not going to do that. Are you fucking kidding? No, me? no, no. <laughs> Transformers. A. Uh, 
let's talk about best animated. I, I did not see all of these, uh, or most of these for that matter. I saw Zootopia. I thought it was great. I saw Kubo and, uh, apparently unpopular opinion. It's, it's kind of boring. Uh, yeah. girlfriend it's liked boring. it. Amanda liked it. She, it's, it's pretty to look at. Yeah. Um, Moana, four out of five I've, OV I've heard, members heard, agree. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I think I'm the only one who liked it. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't like crazy about it, but it was gorgeous. And what did you uh, like I more? My Rose. I'm Zootopia. Team Zootopia. Team Zootopia. That's I, I gotta say, this is a weird one. I haven't seen My Life as a Zucchini. That Has anybody seen the goddamn Zucchini? Can we talk about the nobody, Zucchini? No, it's nobody not out yet. It. It's, it's, right, not it's, not out this it's not getting any kind of release in America until, I think, March. I think it's like... Comes out, actually, I think, this upcoming, next weekend. Oh, okay. Oh, really? So, okay. So, yeah. But um, I, I gotta say, my huge surprise from this is that there's a movie here with Studio Ghibli... Uh, involved in it, and I'm thinking Zootopia, a Disney movie, is the best movie of the category. I'm kind of I was that, surprised. Me take back. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was also surprised that Moana was not so much less Anna. What? That wasn't even a good pun. What are you trying stretch. to say? Wow. <laughs> no, but uh, so who all saw Moana? I think it was just Jake and Jack. Yeah. Yeah. Did, uh, it, did it surprise Moana... you in its qual- quality? No, I, I no. got the rock. It's, it's... It it's looks even, very well. Um, yeah, yeah I think Rock is very good. It's just uh, to me, it's more engaging a fairy tale than Kubo, which I I agree. I thought was really boring. I really wanted to like Kubo. It looks really great. I saw it in theaters, and I was checking my watch every ten minutes. I like I could not like. There's no way around it. The movie fucking bored me to tears. Um, just badly written, telling me over and over again what I was supposed to be learning in every single scene, just irritated me. Sure. Uh, Moana's a little better, a little snappier, but it kind of degrades into a couple of songs and just uh, a general kind of generic kind of myth of someone finding themselves, you know, or kind of story of a, a <laughs> self-actualizing princess. Um, it, there's Another nothing particularly... Yeah, there's, there's nothing... Like, I don't think there was anything particularly stellar. I think it looks beautiful. I think there's some... The Lava Demon is a really great-looking design. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else, Jake? Like, Jake, did you take anything from this? Yeah, the Lava Demon's actually pretty nifty. and um, But it, it does feel derivative of other uh, Disney films with the princess in the lead. And at one point, The Rock even says to uh, Moana, you're a girl and you have a cute animal sidekick, you're a princess. And... Yeah, uh, so the, is this kind of self-aware? I, I'm wondering. Yeah, and that's something I, I wonder how Disney, like Disney, needs to stop with the self-referential fucking nudge, nudge, wink, wink shit because oh, I right. never yeah. works in their favor. And that's one thing I liked about Zootopia was that I, it seemed to. I don't recall it really doing that. It, it was kind of a film that just kind of stayed within its own thing. Yeah. I, might be I, I would say. I, also, I think we all sort of agree that Zootopia is not only like the 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 best of the bunch as far as we know, um, but also it has it tries to play with some social politics and it it ends up being kind of muddy. Yeah, um, it's a little bit but messy. I will say, <laughs> but it's also like the also best movie ever that, made. <laughs> I will also say that um, the sloth scene is probably like the hardest I laughed in the theater. <laughs> last year like i don't know i was busting up i i had no prior knowledge of it and the first time seeing that i was just like rolling were you, were you uh, talking about that was in the trailer where he, la- where he yeah where he yeah. where he laughs at the joke and his face slowly forms <laughs> that smile it just plays really well with some expectations yeah. uh, within some of those jokes. I, I, I know some people that there's been some internet chatter about zootopia being racist which is i think the fucking dumbest thing in the world that's because weird. it's yeah. Because basically, it's it's 
Zootopia is an allegory for racism to some degree, but really it's 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 kind of a film about escaping confirmation bias in a way, and that this idea that uh, the everyone agrees or like it, society views predators as being dangerous and problematic and someone is then it turns into things. how cops are good yeah well yeah <laughs> it does that but like there's this plot that basically seeks to harness that uncertainty to create to buy by painting predators in a bad light which would allow them to basically turn the gears politically to oppress predators and that's like the whole story of the film and whatever you know it's not that important yeah. in terms of details of the film but it's like people are going like well if it's a racial profile well then you know that's saying that like minorities are predators and it's like it isn't i i feel this idea of going back to the source for an allegory no allegory fits its real world counterpart one to one and the idea that by saying these things that that zootopia is racist to me is asinine it's clearly the film is talking about someone being different to you and it's like it doesn't matter they're predators and non-predators within the film because that's just an easy binary category to choose within the film but that's not it's not trying to claim from that extrapolating yeah. backwards that that minorities are predators that's an absurd kind of a view and it's completely in opposition to everything the film has to say otherwise it's this wantonly aberrant reading from people who i think just want to be want to look smart it's like it's fucking first year college (laughs) freshman fucking hot take bullshit yeah i I think i think with zootopia where it gets a little bit muddy is so you know you have you, you you predators who are in the movie they they start going feral basically and attacking people so then they try to set up, yeah, they, they try to set up this system where they can start to oppress the predators because they're seen as dangerous. But then you run into this other like weird power dynamic where it's like, wait a second, okay, how are you going to oppress the predators when like they're naturally the more powerful animals? And it, it, it just gets kind of weird. But if you if you I, if you don't think about it too hard, it works really well. And and because this yeah. is a movie made for children. I think it's it's good and it's it's much think, more of baby's first racism movie than hidden figures. Yeah, there you go. Hey, you brought back the hidden figures. Well done. <laughs> yeah, I f- I feel that like I think Zootopia is firstly yes, it's designed to be digestible to children, and I just think it actually has a really int- it has a message that I think is not because it's not really just about racism. It's about social perceptions and counteracting those just generally like it just mm-hmm. this idea that you know you view people in a certain light and that you know it's important to uh, get outside of that that you know it's not just about race it's about any kind of a social divide and um, i think it does a really great job of packaging that up in a film that is honestly really funny really entertaining looks great mm-hmm. plays a little bit with genre it's got this kind of interesting film noir middle section with its investigation <laughs> the godfather and, stuff is funny yeah too. the godfather stuff it's like it's it's really just honestly Honestly, I I was not. I'm not a Disney fan, generally speaking. I was expecting the Red Turtle Turtle to be my runaway favorite as like the art house animated film, but Zootopia. Honestly, I just really shit like it. It's a really good film. As much as I want to be the the guy at the back and go, no, it sucks. I'm now calling the people who say it suck well, assholes. Myself. Before before we move on, I just want to say I'm really looking forward to my life as a zucchini running away with this award. Uh, let's talk best foreign <laughs> language film. I think there's there's basically two movies here that I think we really need to talk yeah. about because they're the only yes. two that are in real contention and probably the only two worth talking about. Cause if, I believe... if you want, I can run over the other three by saying that don't bother. Okay, so go. Tana, Land of Mine, not Landmines, just Land of Mine. 
Uh, that's that a terrible mind. pun, by the way, because yeah. it is about landmines. In is Danish it? and German, it's called under sand or under the sand. And then in English, it's landmine. Land <laughs> did they just run the title through Google wow. Translator? <laughs> yeah, and that's the best thing about the movie. And honestly, Land of Mine is the best film in this category that isn't Tony Erdman or The Salesman. Okay. Uh, Land of Mind is kind of like, it's a generic war movie. It's about it tells a true story about how post-World War II Denmark uh, basically took a bunch of German child soldiers, basically very young recruits, and forced them to clear landmines from the beach. Uh, There were millions of landmines buried throughout the, the western coast of Denmark. So they did that, and it was basically considered to be one of the great uh, human rights violations of the Danish military in in post World War Two, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like it's just one of those movies that absolutely hits every beat that you would expect it to hit. It doesn't do anything unusual, and then it, and then it piles on a bunch of like there's just a bunch of scenes where you just where you know exactly what's going to happen, and not just like when they're painstakingly diffusing a mine. It's like oh well, one of those is going to blow up. We know this, you know. But there's other scenes where like they're throwing a bunch of landmines onto a truck and it's kind of like one of them they're joking and it's a really light-hearted scene and they're like bonding and it's like well we know that truck's gonna blow up and kill all of them like it's just one of those <laughs> films it's like Jesus. it is absolutely totally predictable it's it has the courtesy of clocking in at under 100 minutes which a lot of films we're talking about today do not hidden figures is not under 100 minutes um no. hacksaw ridge fucking doesn't even come close <laughs> so fair play to it on that um but yeah, it's, I mean, it's similar to that. It's similar, it's similar to like hitting every button. Uh, I can speak to that man called Uv, uh, <laughs> the Swedish movie, which I can just sum up in one line, and we can move on. It's uh, Grumpy Gus becomes Softy Stew, mm. and it's really, Beautiful. it's really, it, a, really obnoxious movie. Would you say it, it really doesn't Uv you? <laughs> no, I mean there there there's some genuinely funny lines from this movie, and I had high hopes coming into it, but it just turns into like old old grumpy grandpa learns to love people. Uh, yeah, the yeah. first half hour I think is pretty strong. It's got a little bit yeah, of dark I agree. humor vein to it. I had, I didn't dislike it in the end. I kind of ended up like I kind of thought it was okay, but I will never watch it again. It, it does this flashback thing that is just like so obnoxious. Yeah, it's a very typical foreign film, I think, for the the Oscar category in that it's very much a film about how, you know, a portrait of a man's life or of a person's life and kind of flashbacks and romance and kind of that almost poetic realist element to it or magical realist element to it, almost of how the coincidences, like this is a film just rampant with coincidences and weird accidents that propel events forward um it's just if you're in the right mindset it's kind of at least it's a feel-good movie like at least it's not a movie trying to like critique anything uh but yeah again not an important film not certainly in terms of what swedish cinema has no. produced no, uh, sure. no this is not a valid not an important uh entry well you know we recently put up a, a podcast an episode of you ain't seen nothing yet on uh a separation which is an Iranian film. And Sean and Jake, you were both on that podcast. Jake, can you give me a rundown on that director's latest, The Salesman, which is up for Best Foreign Language? Why should yeah, I see so, this? I mean, why then I'm going to anyways because The Separation is basically a perfect movie. Yes. Yeah, aside from that. So, yeah, this is, uh, this is his second film now that I've seen of uh, Asghar Farhadi. Um, the Salesman is about a, uh, a couple have to leave their apartment building because some construction is, is next door is essentially causing it to collapse. They move into this temporary building. 
uh, where one night um, the wife is anticipating the husband to come home. Uh, here's the buzzer on their apartment door, so she buzzes it in and opens the door, and the husband returns home to find his wife uh, bloodied in the shower, and a man had entered the apartment and attacked her. And the film is essentially him trying to piece together as to who could have done this based on clues that were left behind in the apartment. And uh, meanwhile, the man who's also a uh, school teacher is also trying to run a play uh, that's an adaptation of the uh, death of a salesman. And much like a separation, it's a very compelling study of these uh, of these two figures caught in a tragic uh, turn of events. And namely, it's told from the point of view of the husband. And it's one of the most like the authentically portrayed and deeply humanist films that uh, is you'll see all year. Um, uh, who else saw this film? Yeah, I, I saw it as well. I, I think what's what's and, what's fascinating to me about the film, I think, is it plays on doubt, and it's just like a separation as well. It's a film yeah. of where there's a deficit of knowledge for the characters, right. and. Yeah. For Hot, he doesn't give it to the audience either. It's a film where there's it's unclear. In, in like the the man comes home and he finds he actually the wife isn't even in the house, apartment. She's already been brought to the hospital right, by yeah. her neighbors who found her. Um, the wife is un, unwilling to talk about what happened, and he doesn't know. Did whoever came into the apartment? Did they just hit her? Did they really like? Did they rape her? It's it's unknown. There's these gaps of knowledge, and the film, and and like a separation. I feel it's it's, it's this portrait of a doubt, kind of wedging in between two people and kind of pushing them apart as they try and determine what's happening. And it's it's really fascinating because I I feel like a separation had more of a Rashomon film or Rashomon feel. It was a film of different perspectives. This film is really very – it's more driven by just the, the main character, the man's perspective. But it's still – we don't find the answers. They're, they're not given to us, and it leaves us uncertain at the end of it as well. So we're really left with how would we – you know, how would we handle this idea, you know, what with knowledge that is not forthcoming. And it's something that's very – a lot of filmmakers are very unwilling to do, and a lot of storytellers are very unwilling to do, is to not – give you all of the story and it's very comforting when you have all the story when you're above everyone in the film but for Hadi sits you in there with them and you you really have to try and navigate with them hmm. yeah for Hadi really, right? I just watched it today actually he's, he's for Hadi is just such an intelligent filmmaker the way he utilizes that sort of uh crumbling apartment building as a backdrop and representation for the situation and again just the interplay with the Arthur Miller material uh, it is a tight ship I'd recommend it to anyone it's a very smart very uh, satisfying film it's not quite a separation but man stop notch stuff that guy I'll watch anything he makes Mm. Yeah, the, from the opening sequence of which is like this beautiful one take shot of them fleeing the crumbling apartment building, oh. all the way to the very end, like there's this feeling of apprehension I had about what was going to happen next that I just could not shake, and I think that's really a sign yeah. of something extraordinary. It reminded me a lot, actually, of uh, first it, there's a certain Hitchcockian almost element to it, but it reminded me a lot of Haneke's Cachet as, as oh. a film of yes. a deeply unsettling. Mm-hmm element that again we're not really i guess cachet is kind of an allegory for french colonialist aggressions and kind of the 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 rhythm of that or the the echoes of that through 
through their time. This film is, has something about this distance between individuals that is, as I said before, is just is never resolved. You've got to live with it as something that you'll never truly be able to to grasp or, or you know or know fully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like the sort of tension he draws from something as simple as in adora jar it's just he, he knows what he's doing <laughs> yeah yes and he won't be at the oscars yeah well he'll trump's america thanks a lot Ugh. all right uh safer already yeah right i know <laughs> yeah we kept out this brilliant filmmaker that's good um should, should i mention tana just to clarify because tana fits in with Moana, weirdly enough, and that they're both films that <laughs> they're like rhyme? Pacific Islanders. Oh. <laughs> uh, Tana's the Australian entry, and basically, I don't recommend it. It's weird because it's a film full of uh, Pacific South Islanders performing in their own native language. I think it's shot on like Vanuatu or some I, one of those islands. I'm not sure the name of the language. It's one of it kind of follows a primitive tribe there, and that's actually they play. It's kind of got that neo-realist element that it's actually these primitive tribes people playing themselves, playing out basically something that's based on a true story, but is very reminiscent of Romeo and Juliet of a, a young couple who uh, who go against the oh, the Baz Luhrmann films. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much like that. Um, all, except that the protagonist in this film looks weirdly like a young O.J. Simpson. It's kind of Ooh. weird. Like that's a Pacific South Islander, made in Australia. Uh, yeah, but um, it's basically uh. it's not a good film. <laughs> made in Australia, O.J. Simpson. But uh, it's it's not a good film. It's very reminiscent of something like F.W. Murnau's Taboo from 1929 or so, which was this wonderful silent film, but that it was so much more evocative of a fairy tale. This feels like uh, it, I. Back to Hidden Figures, this feels like, oh, this is the whitest movie I've ever seen that doesn't feature any white people in it. <laughs> um, because it is directed by some white folk who just went over to the island and filmed it in collaboration with the islanders. It feels like voyeurism or something? Yeah, yeah, it's basically they kind of, they they try and formulate this, this um, they try and formulate this, this uh, fairy tale, kind of grand tale of, of romance and how these young couples' bravery and sacrifice kind of brought the uh, these tribes together. But it's just, it basically puts in stately uh, kind of nature photography. It kind of substitutes that in for any kind of inner dialogue. It, it never really gets under the surface of things. It's just kind of it assumes that there's a kind of a magical element to them just being tribes people, but it doesn't really look at their lives, at their values, at their perceptions at all. It's very superficial. The film, honestly, to me, was just a tremendously boring slog. It doesn't... It's. It's. I think it's worthwhile to bring the camera to these locales and film these people and to give them a potential to, to present and to... to put their perspective on screen but tana is not their perspective yeah i'll wait for herzog yeah it's it's not it's what it's it's kind of like honestly it almost feels a little bit like apocalypto as well which we mentioned all the way back when we were talking about hacksaw ridge it's kind of got that that it's got a bunch of scenes of like weird tribal killings and stuff that are restaged by these actors um it just it feels like a film that has nothing at stake it's and but you know that the directors who i think started in documentary filmmaking you can tell that they feel very proud i think of what they've accomplished by basically exploiting a tribe to make not a very good movie <laughs> um that, that's kind of it like really I, it's just it's not a good film it doesn't it could have been something so interesting and so spectacular and instead it's just kind of it's another movie for classrooms 
All right, let's uh, let's talk about uh, this. Is actually, the last movie we're going to talk about. How sad. Um, we've only been doing this for four hours. So, uh, oh no, wait. <laughs> Damn, the, I'm pulling the curtain back again. No, these two are hours. two totally separate episodes. It just felt like Fuck four it, hours. Fuck, let's start from scratch. Yeah, yeah, let's just do it over again. Axel Ridge is oh, the wait, tale guys. of a man. <laughs> we still got documentary features. Oh, I guess we do. Yeah, I forgot about that. We still got documentaries. Um, skipping that. Skipping the documentaries. I am not it. your Negro. Um, <laughs> anyway, Tony Erdman. Let's talk about the Erdman, yeah. Uh, I, I actually was planning on watching this as soon as we're done. So uh, This is a sequel to uh, uh, 2015's Birdman, correct? Yeah, I think so. Erdman and Birdman. Yeah, yeah it's actually the full title is Tony B. Erdman. Mm. That makes sense. I thought it was a sequel to John Renoir's neo-realist classic from 1934, so called Tony, and this is Tony Erdman. Uh-huh. And, then, and it involves Tony, 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 the 80s band. And <laughs> That was that was a good joke. Someone on the Criterion Reddit forum is going to laugh at that joke. Yeah, that's yeah. about it. That's that's our audience. I watched this. I watched this movie uh, this week, and uh, I knew that a lot of people loved it. Um, and and I definitely enjoyed it. I, I was engrossed, but I was surprised by how funny moments of it. It's not like it, I wouldn't. It wouldn't. I wouldn't be like Are you in are you in the mood for a comedy. Like you should watch Tony Erdman. But it's like. A movie that lets itself be funny in ways that a lot of other dramas, like I, I guess people call it a comedy, but I, I think it's it's a drama that lets itself be funny. And, yeah, it draws uh, absurdist elements, which yeah, are naturally funny. So, right, and, and that absurdism often comes from like this titular character. Um, but man, it, it's the editing of the comedy is what makes it work. Uh, which yeah, yeah this yeah. this feels to me. I, I feel there were several films this year who were or what I kind of consider to be messy films, and it kind of not not that they're badly made, but that they're more in that Shohei Imamura sense of a messy film, and that it's kind of a tangle of elements, and you've got a kind of an oppositions. Uh, like L is a messy film. It's the film that just has so many. <laughs> details in it that it's you gotta push through tony erdman is similar i think that there's it's basically the the plot involves a very hard-working german businesswoman who's really trying to make it in a very male-dominated industry she works as a consultant for a major oil firm it's trying to strike up a deal it's basically they're looking for reasons to lay off thousands of workers in romania and she's basically has to try and justify that through uh her consultancy firm um her father feels she's unhappy in her job so he decides to take it upon himself to visit her at her job posing as tony erdman a weird consultant with terrible fake teeth that he puts in (laughs) and he basically just messes he just starts interfering with her life and causing great struggle this this, kind of sounds like the greasy strangler (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's kind of like Greasy Strangler, but like this and a man called Uve are, are sort of like about Schmidt adjacent. Yeah, it's it's and what I say it's messy is that I mean it's this story of basically a career a driven career woman trying to succeed and her dad coming in and fucking it up because she's not happy. I mean it's this very awkward like storyline from that perspective, but it, it really brings in a whole element about how family works and how awkward family can be there's elements of kind of a critique i think of global commerce and globalism of kind of coming in and running roughshod over other countries uh, i think it's a very sad film despite being hilarious at points i think it ends on what i thought i thought the final sequences was really sad i don't know if everyone else did um it's a really interesting film i this is one i actually ended up seeing twice in fact 
I how much do I, oh. I like my wife? I ended up I passed on seeing Silence in theater to watch Tony Erdman a second time so she could see it. So it's got to earn me some bonus points somewhere along the line. Uh, not that it was a major chore because Tony Erdman's a great film. It's not like I went to see Hacksaw Ridge a second time. No, no, no. Oh. Myros, you loved this, didn't you? I did. I think that Jack has said a lot about what it is, but it's just it's kind of a screwball movie that still manages to have uh, a great deal of, of sadness and pathos and insight to it. And it's just a, a beautiful movie about, uh, you know, two people desperately trying to rekindle a, a time when they felt close to each other. And, and uh, you know, it, it's there's a great vein of unhappiness in this film, and it is pretty wonderful to watch, I think. Screwball is like the appropriate word, but I feel it's too strong because it's really very much more subtle than like the connotations that the term screwball arises from. I feel the the office, the UK office, I think is a good uh, kind of analogy in terms of its humor. It's very understated, and even like so brilliant. Yeah, it's just like say it's a German comedy. The Germans are. Typically not known for that, which is an unfair thing. I've made plenty of comedies throughout the year, but it is a film that really leaves you in cringe-worthy situations and lingers in them. I mean, the film's two and a half hours long. It's actually a, an oddly lengthy film, but it kind of saunters through these situations and leaves you sitting in them. For oftentimes, probably wanting to get out of them, you're like, please. It saunters uh, much, much like uh, the titular character in one of the final scenes. God. Yeah, I. I could have like I was getting that about Schmidt vibe to an extent, and I was like, okay, because they're talking. They've obviously they've already uh, announced an American remake of this film starring Jack Nicholson and, and Kristen Wiig, and uh, I I was getting a real. I'm like, okay, you know, if they do this the right way, like an Alexander Payne type could really pull this off. Until it gets to its its really very European art film sort of climax, at which point I was like, I really just do not understand how they're going to pull off like this no. sort of baseball mascot walking into a nude party. And uh, <laughs> so funny. <laughs> I don't know how to describe Steve. it. And Steve, Steve, yeah. you'll 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 experience this and, and like. No matter what we say, I don't think you can imagine like what's going to happen. <laughs> I'm really been preparing for it. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, I, I, I'm making an executive decision to uh, trim some of the fat here. So as much as I know you guys want to talk about sound editing and sound mixing, we're actually just going to talk uh, best actor, best supporting actor, and best documentary. Um Best actor and best supporting actor, these are all things that we've, we've kind of talked about at length. So... I guess we'll just go around and just give me real quick one-off who you think is going to win and who do you think deserves to win. Um, I I think Casey Affleck will probably win this one for Best Actor. I'd say, yeah. Yeah, and he's he's probably, I'd say he probably deserves it more than... You know, Gosling or Andrew Garfield or Vigo. Well, I think Andrew he deserves, Garfield. Yeah, Denzel. Yeah, he deserves it more than Denzel. I, I think. I think he he wins. Yeah, I don't know. Myros, I'm just, just going to posit my theory that Vigo Mortensen is only in this category because he did full frontal nudity and Captain Fantastic. Yeah, you hang dong, you get the nom. That's how it works. That's what. Yeah, personally, I could. It's a coin. weird throwaway scene too. <laughs> hey, you never throw yeah, that. Personally, dick I would. I would coin flip between Denzel and Casey Affleck. I think they're both fantastic, and whoever wins, good on them. You really like Fences. Uh, yeah, I thought it was really good. I, I especially it, love I will, the I will say it's. I will say it's a movie that I feel like I could watch again. 
Um, sure. Yeah. I was particularly anyway. taken with the performances. So, uh, yeah, Denzel. Cool. Yeah, good on him if he wins. All I right, think he was great. Let's talk. Oh. Uh, let's talk. Uh, best supporting. So. Uh, oh, I'm, it's definitely going to Ali yeah. Maharasha. Ali in Moonlight, who's beautiful in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shannon. It's kind of funny that he was nominated here and not. And uh, but a different uh, actor from the same movie was nominated for the Golden Globe. Yeah, the worst actor. <laughs> what kick ass? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that was the worst performance in Nocturnal Wait, wait, wait. McLovin is, is the worst in Nocturnal Animals? In, no, no, not McLovin. Uh, the, the, the guy himself, Mr. Kickass. It's like oh, Taylor and, Jones and or something like Johnson. that. Oh. Yeah. Didn't he he's, win? he's like the worst performance yeah, in every won. movie he's ever been in, I think. Yeah, he won, he won he, the Golden Globe, but he he wasn't nominated. Was yeah. he, Lucas Hedges is sort of like a dark horse, but he won't get it. Jeff Bridges is also great. Dev Patel sucked. Yeah, uh, Dev yeah, Patel is odd as a best supporting actor anyway. Because how is he like he the best supporting actor to the child in the first forty five minutes? It like I guess it kind of makes sense, but it kind of doesn't make sense to me. The Dev Trevante Rhodes, I think Trevante yeah. Rhodes would be nominated. Sure, yeah, yeah. As much as yeah. I like uh, Mahershala Ali, I think my pick would probably be Jeff Bridges here. I thought he was just like outstanding in, in that particular role. Yeah, I, I think Bridges was superb, but I kind I would give the edge to Mahershala Ali, and I kind of really hope he wins. I, you know, I think I, I have a feeling that this is going to be one of those things where Moonlight does not win where it should, but it's got a good chance there. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. All right, let's uh, let's wrap things up with best documentary. Uh, this is this is kind of weird because I've heard good things about I Am Not Your Negro, uh, Fire at Sea, and Life Animated, and Thirteenth. I have like literally heard nothing about. Is uh, so I guess the question I'm going to say is: Is there any chance in hell that anything <laughs> other than OJ Made in America wins? Because we, no. we've talked about this on the show before. OJ Made in America is fantastic. Like it, it's absolutely incredible. It should win. I was. I haven't seen I Am Not Your Negro. I, I think. <sighs> Yeah, it, it, it's eight hours long, and I don't think that Thirteenth is nearly as good. But I would be I I when I watched Thirteenth, which I'm a bit harsh on as much as I appreciate the movie and I, as much as I think it has to say. But that's the thing; like it has much more to say than it, it's it's given time for. It's like I want to see the eight hour version of Thirteenth. I feel uh, my problem with my problem with Thirteenth is that I think it really shares too much common ground with a film called The House I Live In. Wait a second, pump the brakes. What the hell is Thirteenth about? Thirteenth is that the Thirteenth Amendment of oh. the U.S. Constitution. Ever heard of it, Steve? No, <laughs> it's kind of important. If the president doesn't slavery. read the Constitution, why should I have to? <laughs> That's true. So the Thirteenth Amendment abolished slavery, but it allowed. Uh, allowed slavery as long as they were prisoners. And this basically meant that the United States has spent, ever, since it abolished slavery, it's just tried to put African Americans in prison instead. Very successfully, we might add. Um, I am, African- I'm bored. I think Alison Schroeder should like, write a screenplay. I feel 13th, just, it, there's a film called The House I Live in, a documentary is made uh, two or three years ago, which I think covers very similar ground, but is a much more to my mind, a much more persuasive and a much more far-ranging film. I think Thirteenth is very good for beginning a conversation. Yeah, I think I think it's very good for starting a conversation. I think it could be a great film. I know I've been using this as an insult for every other film, but I think this actually could be a useful film for a school classroom for starting. Baby's, baby's fourth, baby's fourth you, racism movie. Yeah. You know, what, you know what that Alison Schroeder film would be called, Adam? 
thirteenth figure going on thirty. No, <laughs> I was gonna say hidden chains. Oh, oh, yeah. but, oh yes. uh, I, I like thirteenth going on thirty myself. Yeah, thirteenth going on thirty is way better. <laughs> thirty more amendments. <laughs> oh All right, guys. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thirteenth, thirteenth is is like a good watch. Like uh, I would, I would not dissuade anyone from watching it. But I, I found myself like persuaded by like small parts of it, like the stuff about the ACLU and lobbying and stuff about like the 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 prison food uh, industry. Like that stuff, it, like deserves its own documentary instead of being jam packed into this stuff about good, Reaganism. Good news. And, yeah. good news, Sean. Watch the house I live in. <laughs> It's already there. There you go. I will. I will certainly. Uh, life. I. I, I want to just get life animated out of the way really sure, quickly sure. by saying this is uh, autism one hundred and one movie. Um, this movie sucks. Okay, so I, I'm not trying. I don't. I don't want to brag or play like play the experience card. But I worked with with uh, people of all different ages with autism for, oh my God. for I'm a long a jerk time. Off motion. Can you feel it on the microphone? No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. And. <laughs> And the first thing that like you 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 know when you work with people with autism. So this is about this movie. I should say is about um, a family uh, learning how to connect with their um, now adult child with autism through Disney movies. Uh, this this kid is very high functioning. Oh, I already uh, hate this fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I actually accidentally watched a movie called An Animated Life on Netflix. That was <laughs> that was about for a lot um, better. <laughs> it was about like the first black uh, animator at Disney. It also sucked, but anyway. Um, so this is about yeah, this family is like learning how to communicate with their kid uh, through Disney movies, and this is the most ordinary story in American families that have a child of autism you go to any like agency that works with these kids like they have disney movies lined up on vhs because these kids love to like fast forward like to the to the right part and like just recite things it's all so basic it does not deserve to be this documentary that acts as if it's an anomaly um i i i watched like a half hour half hour and i was just like i feel like this is orientation for a job I'm not doing. Sure, I really want to recommend. I probably no one else has seen it, and you kind of shouldn't. But maybe you should if you got a lot of beer on hand. A movie from 2009 called The Horse Boy. I feel like this would be perfect. <laughs> this is a real movie. Boy? This is a real movie about a bunch like a rich white couple who have an autistic child, and they find out he just really loves horses. So since they have just a shit ton of money, they just go on a big long. Hey, this is a documentary too. Yeah, right? this is a do- yeah, this is a documentary, and again, it's about their kid. He's got autism or whatever, and uh, they basically like he's got a bond with horses, so they just because they have a shit ton of money, they just go on a like a big trip and have <laughs> horses, and then they come out like with this fantastic thing. It's like maybe if your kid had autism, you could do the same thing. As like, well, yeah, this he is, has a load of money. This or, is a write up from the horseboymovie dot com. It delves into the strange world of autism. <laughs> what, God. what the hell is happening here? Oh, we're we're putting like an hour over time, and we're talking about the fucking horse <laughs> boy all of a sudden. What? Didn't need to derail it, but you should great, check that out. Great, <laughs> would also make a great shotgun wedding pair with the horseman, oh, otherwise known as Zoo. <laughs> oh, okay, so uh, fire at sea. Was I the only one who saw that? Yeah, I started it, but I didn't get very far. Okay, so Fire at Sea, I thought was it's pretty good. It's um, isn't that the I'm one with Mark Wahlberg? With it as <laughs> uh, no, yeah. no, unfortunately. no. There's Fire at Sea is about 
it's it's basically a kind of shot on uh, Lampedusa, which is uh, one of the islands in Sicily in Italy, and it's uh, kind of a point where a lot of migrants are trying to traverse the Mediterranean to get from Africa and various other countries into Europe as to claim asylum. Uh, it kind of interpo it kind of intersperses life day in the life. Uh, uh, dealings with just the people of the island with footage of the, the refugees um, being rescued, being interviewed uh, there's a lot of really powerful stuff in this, particularly with the refugees I'm not sure how well it gels with the kind of day slice of life stuff that's happening elsewhere it's supposed to kind of paint this portrait I guess of kind of competing interests of how there's this kind of incredibly important devastating thing happening amidst people's regular lives but they never intersect it's a very kind of unusual with the way that the film is unfolded i'm not sure i'm entirely convinced by it but i do recommend i think it's it's a very interesting film a very interesting documentary uh that being said i still i'm with everyone that kind of oj mid america is clearly way ahead of the curve here bearing in mind that i've not seen i am not your negro and i haven't seen life animated but uh uh, the horse boy, it was a piece of shit, so I'm assuming it is too. I just can't get over this. It delves into the strange world of autism. It says it says that like it's like a movie about like dog fighting or something like that. <laughs> it, it, it delves into the strange world of dog fights. <laughs> Which I would watch. Jeez. Well, that's just because you like dog fighting. Uh, but yeah, OJ so made in America. Fight between an autistic kid and a dog. I'm gonna go with the dog. Yeah, well, you know, it depends. Um, OJ Made in America is, I mean, you need eight hours, but I think I watched it over the course of like three, four days, and it's it's engrossing. It's so, so good. And that guy with the uh, whispery, high-pitched voice, I just want to hang out with him all day. Oh, OJ's man. like best friend. From <laughs> you know who I don't want to hang yeah. out with? The, the elderly juror lady who every time she showed up, she just said something just absolutely horrific. But she was yeah. she was on the jury. She just they cut her, and she she literally just says things like, "I have no respect for a woman who stays in an abusive relationship." Right. Like, oh God, that, please! <laughs> but she does, and then he comes back. She's like, "Yep, we weren't going to convict him because we knew that it was white people versus black people, and it's just oh terrible." And, I hope but, she I mean, comes back in the sequel, Jay made in Australia. <laughs> Maybe, but yeah. If, it's one of those films. It's just so detailed. I feel it. I feel the pacing's a little off on it. Like it, it spends an hour and forty minutes just talking about how O.J. Simpson football's really good, uh, and it just kind of belabors that point a little bit. And it doesn't touch his original, his marriage, his first marriage at all. Pretty much like he's married and he had some kids, and then he left and he just moved on somewhere else. And they never mention his wife at all. I assume she didn't want to participate or whatever. But it's kind of a weird. It's weird how detailed the film is generally for it to completely skip that. But other than that, it is an absolutely exhaustive piece of work. It goes everywhere and talks to everyone yeah i think i looked her up at some point i i think that is the case that she's she's really like notoriously not interested in being in the public spotlight at all so i can well, see why they may be glossed over that for his second wife so yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right guys uh i think that just about wraps it up so um yeah we don't have too much more to say so if 
You enjoyed the show, and of course you did, because you listened to four hours of us talking about Oscars over the course of two episodes. <laughs> Please go to iTunes, where you probably downloaded this very podcast. Do us a huge favor. Go to the Optimism Vaccine page on iTunes. You're going to be able to rate and review the podcast. What you should do is you should give us five stars, because you love us, and we're, we're beautiful, handsome boys who tell you about mo- movies and stuff. And write a re- written review. And when you do that, more people can see the podcast. Uh, more people listen, and then our audience snowballs, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then we take over the world, and Sean becomes a producer on the Hidden Figure sequel. Ah. If you want to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at Optimism Vaccine. You can go to OptimismVaccine.com. You can also email, it a, email us, OptimismVaccine at gmail.com, or if you want to contact us individually, I'm at Steve Cuff on Twitter. Sean, where do we find you? At Mr. Glynis. Yeah, where do we find you, Jake? At Jake Tropila. And uh, how about you, Jack? You can find me at Real Jack Eason. Maros, where do we find you? I don't know, some cave or something. <laughs> the bottom of a glass. Ah, uh, yes. I, I, you know, I used to, I, I usually just like throw out a random social network that's antiquated or clearly not somewhere where you would be, except I think I've actually Peach. run out at this point. Yeah. <laughs> You can find you can find Myros on Venmo begging for money. <laughs> She's on Google Earth looking for lion locations. <laughs> Trying to like find that. my way back home. Oh Jesus. <laughs> oh sweet lord. Alright guys, thanks again and uh yeah. Bye bye.